On episode 15 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, Brendan Vargas. When you were giving permission for somebody to go out or when you were setting up a story, you were also basically having to mitigate that with the risk factors involved. You know, will they come under fire? What kind of security, what kind of protection are they going out with? What kind of convoys are they going into? People's lives are on the line. I mean, there's there's no better way to put it. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast, insights and information from world-class leadership experts. Welcome to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. I'm Randy Lane. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Brendan Vargas. Brendan is a truly international leader. He's led military broadcast teams all over the world, worked in the U.S. Embassy in Mozambique, and speaks several languages. He recently made Senior Master Sergeant in the Air Force, the second highest enlisted rank. I worked with him at American Forces Network Tokyo. And now here's our talk with Brendan Vargas. What's your story? What's your background? My background is I joined the Air Force in 1997. After figuring out what to do with myself and my life, after spending about three years at the University of Florida and not going anywhere with my uh, academic or educational career, I was always interested in the military, always had uh, considered serving in the military. So at that point in my life, it was the perfect opportunity for me to uh, enlist in the Air Force. And that's what I did. I came in the Air Force 19 years ago, went to Lackland Air Force Base for basic training. And then after that, I had a guaranteed job as an information manager, which is basically a a glorified term for secretary, office manager, uh, whatever you want to call it. Spent four years as an information manager. Uh, While I was Uh, Doing that job, one of the good things about the Air Force is is if you like the Air Force but you're not a fan of your first job, they give you the opportunity to retrain, and that's what I did. And I became a a broadcaster, radio TV broadcaster, uh, through the selection process back in uh, 2000 and uh, was basically cleared to become a broadcaster. So in 2000, I found that out. At the same time, I got promoted to staff sergeant, which was my first entry into the uh, official leadership world in the U.S. Air Force. 2001, I retrained into broadcasting and went to Iceland for my first assignment as a broadcaster. Fast forward to 2004, that's where, when he was a petty officer, Randy Lane and I first worked (laughs) together at Yokota Air Base when I uh, transferred into there in uh, uh, August of 2004. And uh, he and I worked together quite a bit. We deployed to Thailand together right after the tsunami. Basically, he left and he went to the, uh, what was it, the Kitty Hawk? Yep, Kitty Hawk. So he stayed in Japan. I stayed in Japan. You know, we still stayed in contact. And eventually he left the Navy, uh, went on to bigger and better things in the civilian world. I stayed in the Air Force. And let me see, when did you leave the Navy? Oh, eight. So eight years later, here I am, Still in the Air Force, uh, been promoted a few times, just picked up promotion this year. Still still working in the broadcast world after a brief uh, stint as a defense attache for four years in a place called Mozambique in Southern Africa, where I got to completely work outside of this career field and do a, a whole new thing representing the U.S. military abroad in one of our embassies. You left AFN Tokyo and you went to Mozambique after that? Is that right? Yes. So how did you land that gig? Because you're, you're a broadcaster and you're at an attache. It's kind of an odd gig, right? It is. But the way the attache program works in the uh, U.S. Air Force 
is that they have uh, a program for officers and program for enlisted. And basically, I uh, in 2006, when I was uh, on a TDY uh, to Laos for, for the entire summer as part of the Joint POW-MIA uh, Accounting Command, um, I was sitting around and I was just looking at, you know, our, our job, our Air Force job, you know, job site, what's available, what you can go into, what's getting open, because my time in Tokyo was coming to an end. And I went on to the special duties and lo and behold, they had an opening for a defense attache position. Uh, any job could apply for it in the Air Force. It was a special duty in Mozambique. Uh, being a Portuguese speaker, it was the perfect opportunity. So I, I applied for it. I'm naive. What, what is attache? What, what does that mean? So defense attaches are the U.S. military representation in a U.S. embassy overseas. Okay. Um, generally, every U.S. embassy has some kind of uh, military representation working there, which is the defense attache office. So they're part of the overall country team that uh, an embassy makes up. A lot of people don't really realize that inside of a United States embassy that you have multiple offices representing multiple federal agencies. Hmm. So in some of our bigger embassies, not only will you have a defense attache, but you'll have a legal attache representing the Federal Bureau of Investigation. You'll have a health attache, which represents the Department of Health and Human Services and deals with things like uh, public health. You also have uh, different offices that are, I mean, even the Federal Aviation Administration has people stationed at uh, U.S. embassies overseas to work as liaisons with uh, certain countries in certain areas of the world. Hmm. Interesting. So what a day in the life of an attache officer look like? For me, uh, my specific job at the time was operations non-commissioned officer. But I was also dual-hatted in the fact that I was running the security assistance program for Mozambique at the time because we were a very small office. Uh, when I arrived in country, there were only three of us, an Army lieutenant colonel, an Army warrant officer, and myself. Plus, we had uh, two local staff at the time, and, and that was it. And we were responsible for representing the Department of Defense uh, interests in Mozambique. So for my side, you know, things that I was doing was uh, a lot of it was basically kind of uh, administration stuff. So I was taking care of a lot of the paperwork. For example, flight clearances were a big thing that I was responsible for. Anytime a U.S. government plane was going to overfly Mozambique, uh, en route to whatever mission it was on, we had to get the diplomatic clearance from the Mozambican government for that to happen. So I would basically put together all the necessary paperwork and make sure it got run through the different uh, Mozambican government agencies to get that clearance and that approval. And then make sure that the uh, air crew had that approval when they were flying the mission over Mozambique. Other things that I did were basically liaison work with the Mozambican military. Part of my security assistance program, I basically sent a lot of their uh, military personnel to training events in the United States. At the same time, we also did training events in Mozambique utilizing U.S. military members. So I was responsible for setting that up. Other things that we would do uh, as part of the overall embassy were to represent the United States. So if there was a diplomatic function, there were times when I would attend the diplomatic function on behalf of the United States government representing the, the embassy, also going on to events with the ambassador here and there. I mean, again, one of the benefits of being in a small shop is that I had the opportunity to do a lot more than a lot of people in my rank and position normally get to do in bigger embassies. It sounds very interesting. See, a civilian like me who's never been in anything like this, it's like foreign, you know. <laughs> exactly. And like one of the cool things is, I mean, we're representing you. 
I mean, that's, you know, at the end of the day, as a, as a civilian and a taxpayer, we're representing you and your interests in whatever country we're in. So anytime we would hold an event at the U.S. Embassy, you know, we're there to represent the United States. We're, we're there to put our best foot forward. Yeah. We're there to show them what the United States is all about, you know, and it, not just, I mean, the entire United States. I mean, one of the good things is, is, you know, in, in the diplomatic service, it doesn't matter what agency that's working in an embassy. We have representative, you know, we have people working there from all over the United States. So not only are we able to showcase the United States, but we're able to talk about the, you know, part of the United States that we're from. Well, one of the things that we do on this podcast for everybody that comes on, we we ask them a question, and that is, can you remember a story or, or think of one of the worst leaders you've ever worked for and one of the best leaders you've ever worked for. And we don't care which way you go first. You know, we, we try and think of examples of, you know, real world situations where, you know, you were really inspired by someone or really just put up with them for a while. <laughs> no, and, and, yeah. And I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think there's a term and I'm sure you guys are well acquainted with it, but toxic leadership. Mm hmm. And in toxic leadership, it's a problem, you know, in the government, in the military, as well as the civilian sector. I mean, I think it's something that transcends all of those different barriers is, is, is dealing with, you know, issues of toxic leadership. And I've definitely worked in an environment with toxic leadership where you have an individual that's just so micromanaging and they're leading, you know, do as I say, not as I do. You know, without getting into too many incriminating details, yeah, um, I, leave I the name definitely out. Think, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can definitely think of some uh, some toxic leadership where I worked for individuals that it, it was just really difficult working for them because they made things more complicated than they need to be. Basically, made the environment you didn't look forward to working there. Mm -hmm. and, and first and foremost, when you wake up in the morning and you know you have to go to work your feeling about that describes who you're working for. And I can say in this situation is I, I did not look forward to going to work yeah. at all. That's how bad the work environment was. And no, Randy, it wasn't at Yakota. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how did you deal with those situations? I think a lot of dealing with it, it comes down to where you are in your life, your professional life and your personal life. I think if you've been around the block for a while, which at that point I had because I was a little bit over the midpoint of my career, you, especially one of the things in the military is you come to realization, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to leave first or they're going to leave first. But whichever way it goes, the situation you're in is not forever. So as long as you have that, that's one of the positive things. The other thing is you have to figure out what makes that person tick and then work to what that person, you know, what that person needs in order to feel satisfied in the professional environment. And being able to do that, I think, helped me make it through the, uh, the amount of time that I had to work with the individual. Well, do you have any examples of great leaders that you've worked for? So yeah, so transitioning on to great leadership. And again, the flip side of the coin is if you wake up and you're looking forward to going to work or you're looking forward when you get to work to contributing to what your team is doing, then I think you have great leaders. And I've worked for plenty of great leaders that I wanted to be a part of their vision. I wanted to basically contribute to, to the success that our team had. And when you feel like you're working on a team, that really shows you, you know, what kind of leader you have. 
I think that a good leader is somebody that basically you know clearly what their vision is and they empower you to help you get to that to that vision, you know. They're not going to micromanage you. They're basically going to tell you what they want the end result to be and how you get there is really up to your talents and your efforts. I, I totally agree with you 100%. Now, let me ask you this. Being a civilian, never been in the military, the military comes, in my mind, uh, very control and demand, very hierarchical, traditional in nature. So how is it that, you, that your leader can have a vision for what they want to do and you want to follow that within the confines of something that's very rigid like the military? So personally speaking, as, as a leader in the military now, and as somebody who's, uh, you know, on the other side of where Randy and I were back when we worked together in, in 2004 at AFN Yakota, um, I think what I've been able to do is take the lessons that I've learned throughout my years of being in the military, as well as take the education that I have in leadership and management from civilian institutions and basically make it work. I know what worked for me and what motivated me and other people I worked with throughout my years in the military. And I know what didn't work for me and what turned me off and what really, you know, made me not like the environment and the situation I was in. And I'm able to use that and, and basically use it here as the, uh, the job that I'm currently in as the station manager of uh, AFN Misawa. So being able to know what motivates people, being mm -hmm. able to know my people and what motivates them really helps me to run this. Um, again, I'm one of those, you know, my, my personal philosophy on leadership is you get a lot more done using carrots instead of sticks. You know, you've heard, I'm sure you guys have heard that plenty of times, sticks and carrots. Oh, yeah. You know, carrots always win. You have to know your people and you have to know what motivates your people. Knowing that and being able to use that and work with that is what's going to, you know, for me, bring success every time. I have a vision. Uh, the people that, you know, work for me know what my vision is and I let them get me there. You know, mm -hmm. I don't micromanage what they're doing. I look at what they're doing. I help guide them in what they're doing. I certainly give plenty of feedback as to what they're doing, but I want them to use their creativity. I want them to use their abilities. I want them to feel free to try new stuff. And I say that all the time because you're right in the military, there is a very, you know, restrictive culture. And there's a reason for that because there are certain jobs where, you know, literally you have to do A, B, and C in order or something's not going to function properly like, you know, artillery fire or uh, repairs on a military aircraft. Or if you're underway, you know, you're working on a something, an engine or a part of a ship that requires that detailed, you know, in level of instruction. However, I know... Where in, in our uh, world, we have to be down to A, B, and C, you know, down to the nuts and bolts. And at the same time, I also know where I can tell my guys, hey, this is my vision. Now, use your talents and your abilities to get us there. Yeah. Well, you've been in 18, 19 years now, which is a long time. So have you seen the, the military change at all with a, a new group of soldiers coming in, a new group of uh, the culture overall over the last 18, 19 years? Has it changed at all? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think the military has changed greatly in the last 19 years. And, and a lot of it has to do with the different generation of people who are coming in. I mean, different generations bring different values. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that a lot of people, especially in the Air Force right now, we're seeing a lot of, you know, people, there's a lot of changes that have been happening, especially with our evaluation system. 
And, and there are a lot of people that are are having a hard time, you know, understanding it and everything. But the thing about it is, if you're going to go forward, you have to have change. I mean, change is always going to be there. If you don't change, then you're not really moving your organization forward. Part of the, the, the process of change, it doesn't matter if you're military or civilian, is understanding that change, being able to work with that change, and be able to accept that change. And if you can do all three of those, if you can do all three of those things, you know, as an organization, you're going to move in the direction that you need to. Mm-hmm. However, if you have people that you know don't understand it or don't want to understand it, then you're going to have to deal with those individuals and hopefully get them to see why the change is being made. And if not, then deal with it in whatever manner necessary. Yeah. I don't know about you, but um, working for some of the same people, it always seems like the people that were the best leaders for me were the ones who could size up the person and kind of see how much responsibility that person could take on and then to give them room to grow and to trust them that they're going to get the thing done. Because you know people at AFN Tokyo that were kind of bumps on logs and some people that were real go-getters. The real go-getters were always out on the stories and the higher-ups saw that and those were the people that were always going out and um, getting the stories in other countries and stuff. And I feel like there was kind of a competitive nature with um, you and me and um, Lee Hoover. But I, I remember, you know, going to other countries with very little direction except for, you know, this is going on broadly, go cover that. And as a, you know, young 20s person, it was it was like intimidating at first, but then when you see that you can do it and come back on the other side and are successful, it's empowering. And then you look to the people, the leadership that said, hey, oh, you did it, good job. <laughs> no, and, I, and I totally agree with you. And, and I think that goes back to what I was talking about earlier about knowing your people individually. The more you get to know your people individually and the more you know your people individually, the more you're able to basically steer them in the direction that they're meant to go in. Um, again, like you said, you'll have people that are all about it. I mean, you know, you, me, Hoover, Badorf, these are the people that basically you could say, hey, you're going to go TDY to whatever location in Asia and you wouldn't have to worry about a thing because you know that they would come back with quality product, a lot of product, and they would get stuff done. And, and, And you know that you could rely on those individuals. And at the same time, when it came time to move individuals up into different positions, uh, that's who you would always go to. At the same time, the other individuals who may not be as motivated, I guess that's the word that you could use, <laughs> you know, you can always work with them. Because here's the thing I truly believe. When a lot of people come into the military, they're at a really young point in their life, okay? 18, 19, early 20s. And you got to remember, not everybody gets it right off the bat. Don't give up on everybody. I mean, they may not be the most motivated individuals right now, but again, you got to look at the point they are in their life. If you can work with them and you can, you know, help kind of get them on the right direction, one day they may eventually wake up and then take all those lessons and, and hit the ground running. I, I think there's a fine balance. Obviously, let the people who you know are going to get the stuff done, let them let them go and let them do their thing. But don't forget about the other people. You know, you got to mentor and work with them as well, too, because eventually one day they are going to wake up and one day they are going to turn into those go-getters. It's just a matter of time. I remember my last six months at AFN Tokyo, they moved me to production, 
which is like making commercials and stuff like that. And I was actually really unhappy about that because I really enjoyed traveling and, and seeing the world and covering stories elsewhere. But a good leader I worked for at the time, Sergeant Dan Wiltshire, he reminded me when I got there, he said, I know you look at this now and you see that the job that people are doing is not super creative. They're just putting text on screen. But you know what? Use your creativity, come up with some ideas, and I'm, I'm behind you and we'll, we'll see how those work. And I came up with a travel series called Tokyo Traveler. And I basically got the U.S. government to pay for me to sightsee. And then I did stories on it and turned them into commercials and had a great time. And Oh, that's our taxpayer dollars at work right there. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very uh, informational. And I, I'm, I'm guessing we got our, our, our use of them considering how reused AFN commercials are. You know, I was coming from traveling probably half of the month I was gone somewhere and I was really enjoying it to being, you know, stuck in, in Tokyo. And I found some a creative outlet thanks to a leader who kind of reminded me to step outside that box and Mm -hmm. try something different. And, you know, that again goes to what I was saying uh, before, too, is let your people go and the creativity that they will bring to the final product will probably surprise you. And I think that's an important thing. And you're right. One of the things that we do here in, in my station is that everybody has to rotate through all the different positions. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're an award-winning radio morning host. You're not going to do that the entire time you're here. You have to be proficient in all of the different areas. So you will rotate into news. You will rotate into production. But the one thing that I always tell people is you may be really, really, really creative at doing morning radio or you may be really, really creative at you know putting together news stories. But now I need you to take that creativity and apply it to a different area. Use your enthusiasm and use those creativity, you know, use that creative, that creative skill you have and, and apply it to this new area that you're working in here at the station. People who are creative by nature, it's just a matter of being able to shift that creativity into a whole different zone. I think it makes them a more well-rounded airman when they leave because they have gone through all the different cycles and seen how everything works. So switch gears on you just a tad bit. You're in 18 plus years now, so you've worked under two or three different presidents, correct? And I know you're a couple levels removed, but it, when a new president comes and another one, when, when Bush left and Barack came in, did you see any massive culture change, change at all or any shift in the way things were working or was it? So I, I wouldn't say that a, the, a change in president caused the, the, any major culture shift. I would say what really caused the major culture shift was 9-11. I mean, I spent four years in the pre 9-11 Air Force and it was a completely different, you know, I mean, it was a completely different time. Yeah, it was after 9-11 hit. And and actually, I had been on the job as a broadcaster only three weeks stationed in Iceland, my first AFN assignment when 9-11 hit. It was kind of that point, you know, when we were all sitting there and and it actually realized what had happened and realized what was going on. I I was in Iceland. I was at uh, Naval Air Station Keflavik, which is now closed, but they're still talking about um, bringing some assets back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but back in 2001, Naval Air Station Keflavik was the uh, U.S. military base, primarily Navy, some Air Force assets there uh, in Iceland. Um, it was a major base during the Cold War as it was uh, one of the you know major routes for tracking submarines that the U.S. Navy had. Uh, we had a military presence there until 2006 when they closed the base. Uh, that was also part of the, you know, shifting our, our resources to the war on terror to, you know, both the uh, fronts we had in Afghanistan and Iraq going on. 
And uh, I was there. I was. Uh, I'd only been there for three weeks. As a matter of fact, I was uh, going through in processing at the uh, old 85th Mission Support Squadron. We had shown up right after lunch, and the TV was on in the the, the waiting area. And you know, they were talking about something had happened at the World Trade Center. We went into the briefing, and while we were in the briefing, I remember hearing like all kinds of commotion going on outside the briefing room. And then at some point, probably about 45 minutes to an hour after the briefing had started, uh, the the MPF commander, mission personnel flight commander, bust in the room in his old K-pot and World War II web gear, because that's what you got in Iceland to, to do the exercises in. Yeah. And he said, ma'am, you might want to stop. He was talking to the commander. He's like, ma'am, you might want to stop the briefing. I think we're going to war. Hmm. And at that point, stepped outside you could see what was going on because the TV was still on and it, things became clear. So I called the, the uh, AFN detachment and, and they said, yep, somebody's going to come and pick you up. Just get back here right now. I got back there. I, like I said, I've only been there for three weeks, but they're like, here, grab a camera. Just go start shooting video. Yeah, that was it. I mean, we basically wow. got into that whole new footing. And I think from that point forward, everybody knew that the world was a completely different place. And that the United States was about to get involved in something that wasn't, you know, going to be a quick, quick turnaround. Yeah. Well, when Bush came in, 9-11 happened. I mean, that was, I think everybody on the planet knows where they were at and what they were doing when the planes hit the World Trade Center. And and I agree with you 100 percent. The world's different today because of 9-11 than it ever was prior to that. And maybe it's just because it was in our homeland that that it feels different to me than than other things. But uh, so since 9-11, you know, have you seen things? It's been a number of years now. Is, have things calmed down at all or is it still at the, the heightened? I, I wouldn't say things have calmed down, but I would say that the the way that we do business and the pace of operations has become normal. Mm-hmm. You know, deployments, they've become a normal part of being in the military. Basically, security postures and things like that. I mean, it, it's just become a more normal way of life. I mean, if you think about it, we're, we're going on 14 years now of some kind of operations, either in, you know, either in Afghanistan or Iraq. You know, we've been in, we've been involved on the boots on the ground in Southwest Asia now for over 12 years. So it's a long time or 14 years. It's, it's, it's a long time. I mean, it's a part of the way the military operates now. You know, we don't know any differently than this. I mean, if you think about it, 14 years, you have people who have been in, you know, this is well over their halfway point of their career. I mean, if things keep going the way they're going. So right now it's uh, 2016, you think about it in probably about another six years, that's going to be somebody's entire career. You know, yeah. they've, they've, their their entire career will have spanned the entire time we've been involved in operations in Southwest Asia. Yeah. So you were deployed. Where were you deployed? 2004, a little less than a year after we first went into Iraq. I showed up March 2004 in Baghdad. Um, I worked out of Baghdad in the uh, Coalition Press Information Center. Lived on the grounds of one of Saddam's palaces in downtown Baghdad in the uh, the fabled Green Zone. Hmm. Um, so I was there. Uh, 2013, um, I deployed to Afghanistan. I worked in the middle of downtown Kabul, uh, the new Kabul compound, which I guess the the you know it was kind of like the, the Pentagon, if you will, for the U.S. military in Afghanistan. I worked there. It was just down the road from the ISAF headquarters, the International Security Assistance Force, which was the big military headquarters, 
as well as the U.S. Embassy. So we were all in that 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 downtown cluster in uh, in Afghan and Kabul. Uh, traveled throughout Afghanistan, basically to Bagram and to Kandahar. Uh, I did that. I was gone for about a total of eight months. That includes the the train up time to to be able to go in country. So I did that. I've done multiple humanitarian deployments that were you know a month here and there. Obviously, when we were in Tokyo. We, we covered the tsunami together uh, on the ground in uh, Thailand, but also flying across that entire region. So, yeah, I've had quite a few experiences. What would you say about the leaders in these situations where it's not your average uh, office type of environment where you're maybe setting up and having a, you know, a bare bones set up and you're stretching your staff? Like how how do you see leaders reacting in that and how do you act as a leader to get the best result? I mean, it's been mixed. I mean, I've certainly seen, you know, in in 2004, very, you know, micromanaged, uh, very like, you know, and and, and, and it's understandable. I mean, Iraq in 2004, there were a lot of unknowns. I mean, we had barely been there a year. There was still a lot of uncertainty. You had to, you know, basically micromanage in a way to make sure things got done and to make sure people stay safe. I mean, it was just, it, it was a necessity. I mean, Things had to get done in order to do them. You you had to have that level of leadership. Uh, at the same time, in Afghanistan, we had already been there for a good number of years. The territory was known. What you were getting into was known. So you could have a little bit more flexibility and allow people to kind of like do the, you know, do the same kind of work as in here's where I want us to be, now help me get there. However, you also had to be very cognizant of what they were doing to get you there. I mean, obviously you were controlling people going into real world combat zones, real world operations, patrol operations. I mean, when you were giving permission for somebody to go out or when you were setting up a story for somebody to go out, you were also basically having to mitigate that with the risk factors involved as in, you know, will they come under fire? Um, what kind of security, what kind of protection are they going out with? What kind of convoys are they going into? You know, how are they going to get there? I mean, literally, uh, you're really, people's lives are on the line. I mean, there's there's no better way to put it. I mean, it's not trying to be dramatic, but it, yeah. being honest here, I mean, if you're going to send somebody out to cover a patrol, guess what? They're going to be carrying, they'll have a gun, but their primary job is to carry a camera and, and shoot video of that patrol. I mean, that's a very crazy situation. Let's kind of fast forward to you've now run a number of American Forces Network stations, correct? I have been station manager twice now, operations manager here as well. I've done multiple supervisory and management positions in different AFN stations, as well as I uh, basically oversaw the American Forces Network Afghanistan, the entire network, for a period of time when the uh, old network superintendent left and then the period between the new one came in. But then when she came in, I was also kind of like her right-hand man, her executive officer. So I've got numerous amounts of leadership experience doing the AFN job. So tell me what a day in the life of a station manager for a broadcast operation like you have, what, what does that look like? For, for here in Misawa? Let's, yeah, that's, that's a good example. Let's start there. I mean, here in Misawa, so we have the full AFN capability, which is the radio and TV. Uh, we're responsible for live radio Monday through Friday, our morning show and our afternoon show, as well as putting out um, TV news products. We don't do the newscast like we used to. We're still responsible, though, for putting out news breaks. You know, we're putting out two-minute packages that encapsulate, you know, the, what, what's happening here on base. 
instead of like the more traditional five to 10 minute newscast that we used to do every night in Tokyo per se. So I'm, I'm responsible for products, but at the same time, I'm also responsible for the people. So we have operations section, we have a maintenance section, and basically all the people in the station, I'm, I'm, I'm responsible for, for looking after them and you know ensuring that they have what they need in order to be successful. And at the same time, making sure that they're doing what's needed in order to keep the operation here running. Uh, on a daily basis, you're dealing with personnel issues. You're dealing with operational issues. You're basically making sure that you know all the everything is working properly in order to keep things going ahead. And kind of like you said, uh, a lot of the people you're probably working with are younger. You have a probably predominantly young workforce that you're trying to shape, right? Definitely. You know, like one of the things that kind of hit me was a couple of months ago. We got a 19-year-old here. And I've been in the military now for 19 years. So basically, when I came in, this person was born and it was like one of those wow moments. So, yeah, I mean, we definitely have a, our, our fair share of uh, individuals who are of a younger age. But um, I try not to think about that too much because it just reminds me how old I am. Well, you're what middle of the pack now. You're not old. You're not young. You're well in the military. In the military. <laughs> older, but definitely in a civilian sense, no. And I like to run with that one. Yeah. You know, I'm definitely not old. <laughs> You don't look very old. You've never looked your age. Every time you always like tell me how old you are, which I've I've forgotten how old you are. I'm always like, really? I'm going on 41. Really? Yeah. (laughs) I uh, accredit it to never having gotten married or having kids. (laughs) (laughs) You know, with us on this podcast, it's really about leadership. And that's what we were trying to focus on. People love stories that that's what when they're listening to a podcast, that's what they like to hear is stories. Can you think of any good applicable stories of your 18, 19 years of being in, you know, when you start talking about 9-11, I think everybody listens to podcasts can relate to that because that's, you know, it was a very emotional time. And as time passes, it gets a little less, less and less, except around September, obviously we get reminded, but uh, can you think of any very impactful moments or stories of your last 18 years, anything that's memorable? You know, leadership-wise, I, I, I think that if you are a leader, giving your people the opportunity to basically run with their abilities and skills is always going to pay off. I mean, there's going to be times when you have to rein your people in, but for the most part, if you give them the will and you give them the way and you you you, you know your vision is clear where you want to go, they will always do good things and they will always, you know, you, you will always be surprised at what your people can do when you let them go. And I've always been kind of like live by that. I mean, I like letting my people know, hey, this is where I want to be. Now get me there. Also, I think that if you have the right kind of supervision when you're when you're not in a leadership position, if you have the right kind of supervision that you will really, really thrive. Um, I can think back to when I was in Mozambique. I did have really good, you know, people, bosses that that trusted in me. And there were several uh, situations. I mean, one of them that I remember, you know, most uh, vividly was we had just we were finishing up a major U.S. military bilateral exercise in the country. Uh, we had over 500 Marines, and we were running, you know, commercial air charters to get people in and out of the country. And we had the final group and we needed to, you know, get them out of Mozambique. And the, the Mozambican Air Force, for whatever reason, had all of a sudden pulled our ability to use their side of the airport to get people out. Well, you know, having done flight clearances and worked with the international airports for a good amount of time by that point, I knew everybody over on the international commercial airport side. 
So I was able to call the uh, international airport director, Ernesto, and basically say, hey, you know, you know, dude, here's the deal. Um, I, I got to park a plane somewhere. You guys have the brand new terminal that hasn't been open yet, but everything over there looks like it's functioning. Is there any way that we could use your apron? And he was like, yeah. He's like, you know, go for it. He's like, it'd be a perfect opportunity for us to test out the capabilities over there as well, too. All of a sudden, you know, when, when you're able to, like, use your leadership ability to take a problem and convert it into an opportunity, I, I think that's, you know, it really shows how far you've come personally as, and how far you've come professionally as well. Yeah, absolutely. As somebody who's been in that situation the, with the Mozambique example, now as somebody in the situation as a leader, I entrust and empower my people to make decisions because they know what's going on and they know what I want. And you know what? If it works, cool. And if it doesn't work, then you have a learning opportunity right there. I think a, a good leader that we both knew and worked with was Gunnery Sergeant Tim McGough. And I felt the best qualities about him. He was very stern because he's a Marine Corps Gunnery Sergeant. But uh, he was he was a very good communicator. He wouldn't pull punches. He would let you know exactly what he's feeling, and he was interested in fe- in hearing what you were feeling. And the door was always open. There might be some yelling sometimes, but there was always some praise. And so it was a good. You never had to wonder. I you know I wonder what the boss thinks about me. You know what the boss thinks of you. And if you're busting your hump, it's going to be good things. Definitely, Gunny Magoo was. Uh yeah, Gunny Magoo is, is Gunny Magoo. The, that's his name, Gunny Magoo. It's Gunny Magoo, but <laughs> we call some people call him Gunny Magoo. And the thing about him is, yeah, you always knew where you stood with him, and and he was. You're right. I definitely remember having some one-on-one conversations with him that, yeah, they're pretty vivid, to say the least. <laughs> but you know what? At least you knew what the man wanted. At least there was, you know, there was no confusion. There was no ambiguity. I mean, it was like straight up and direct and we got stuff done. We got a lot of stuff done. And, you know, I I definitely think our time in AF in Tokyo, uh, it was a definite, it was definitely a different era than it is now. However, we were really able to thrive and we covered a lot of real world activity. I mean, the tsunami in, in Southeast Asia was like, you know, one of those things. I mean, we were young and we were entrusted to basically hop our way around the Pacific to get to all the different spots. I mean, you know, we had people that would just basically turn up at the airfield and find their way to Sri Lanka. Or I think you went to Malaysia, didn't you? I I went to Malaysia, Sri Lanka, all over Indonesia. And yeah, it was literally just going to the flight briefings and then finding a pilot and saying, hey, can I get on that mission? You got a problem with that? <laughs> and seeing what they say. And then, like you said, uh, it was really interesting because since I was kind of like the leading edge out there, I was traveling a lot. And every time I'd come back to Thailand, which was kind of our base, I would see more people from the team start showing up. Like you showed up. We had people, it was really interesting. We had people from a lot of different bases show up of all different services as well. And we had to just like make it work. And so it went from me you know, working on a table wherever I could find and sleeping, you know, in the back of a C-130 as I was going somewhere else to, at one point we had uh, a big trailer that was AFN uh, Thailand and we had a, you know, a satellite uplink and we had a crew of several people and it just kind of like formed and it was the the kind of leadership uh, melting pot where you just kind of had to say, we've got to get this done. It's a crazy task. Uh, we got to come together and 
just work on this. And, and that was the beautiful thing. I do recall. So what was the air wing that was at Yakota? 374th. So 36 airlift wing. So I rode to Thailand with them. Uh, they got me over there. And I was I basically said, hey, when you guys go back, let me know. Because I don't have any travel arrangements worked out. You're going directly to my base. So I kind of want to be with you. Mm-hmm. They're like, sure, great. And I was covering a story in Sri Lanka. And I was gone for like a week or so. And I came back and the whole air wing was gone. I was like, what happened? And so I called back to, to Tokyo and, uh, and Gunny was like, yeah, they, they, their time was up. They flew back. He's like, well, um, you know, why don't you show up to space available every morning at five and see if you can get on a flight back. <laughs> and I was like, really? And so I think it took me like two weeks to actually get a flight. And what happened was I ran into a pilot of a Coast Guard C-130 that was over there for some reason. I have no idea why. I said, do you have any space? He was going to Okinawa. I, I figured I could, uh-huh. get, I could get back to Tokyo from Okinawa. And he said, you know, I don't have any seats, but sometimes when we're making these flights, if we need one extra person, we have a board we put over the toilet and let someone sit there. So I sat on a toilet <laughs> for 18 hours or whatever it was back to Okinawa to get out of there. <laughs> hey, see, Randy went in, see, Randy went in first, and he just basically brought the bare bones gear that he needed. A week later, they sent me down there with about $2,500 worth of excess baggage and equipment, just me and Val Gimpus, to basically lug all this gear so we could set up the trailer. <laughs> and then they had promised, oh, don't worry, when you go back, uh, somebody's going to go back with you so you don't have to carry this stuff all alone. And sure enough, I went back. I remember it was uh, the old Dong Muang International Airport in Bangkok a couple of years before they opened up Sumer Bivy. And I, I remember just me and three airport porters carrying all that excess <laughs> gear and checking it into United. And as I was checking it in, they, you know, as they were weighing it all and they were tallying up the final price, they just looked at me like, seriously, you, you're, you're, you're going to pay for this. And I'm like, here's the government travel card. Please charge it to this. <laughs> I tell you what, though, man, you know, it's events like that that help shape your leadership ability and skills because it causes you to have to make a bunch of, you know, quick thoughts and ideas on how you're going to get from point A to point B and get everything back in one piece. Yeah. Not to toot my own horn, but when I got out of... But you're going to toot your own A little bit. Uh, (laughs) So when I got out of the military, I went into news, civilian news, which is a different animal altogether, I'll let you know. And the producers were always like surprised at how calm I was in situations where they were panicking. They're like, why are you so calm? And I said, you know, I'm not dealing with uh, jumping out of the back of a C-130 because there's no runway. I'm not dealing with dead bodies. I'm not dealing with possible hostile environments, although sometimes in the ghetto, that's debatable, you know? So really this is a walk in the park for me because all these hard decisions and experiences I've already been through. Exactly. I mean, and that's the beautiful thing about, and I'm sure you've seen it because I've known other people like yourself who have gone from, you know, doing military broadcasting into civilian news. What you go from here to what you go from, what you go to there is like, you're like, wait a minute. So you have somebody who edits the video and you have somebody who writes the script and you have somebody who does this and this. But I'm supposed to do all that. That's 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 what I do. I shoot the story. I write the script. I voice it. And then I edit it all together for the you know, for the newscast. You mean I only have to do one of these seven things? Actually, you know, because of budget cuts, they are moving that way. And so when that happened, 
at my station, I was ready. You had job insurance. Ready to do it. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Job insurance. So what? What's your future? You you a lifer? You gonna retire? I'm I'm retirement eligible in less than a year. Oh okay. So I mean the, the retirement is definitely on the board. What happens after that? I am probably I'm probably gonna open up a, a marketing and consulting firm. Uh, long term, I'd like to retire in Argentina. Argentina, okay. Well, so why Argentina? Beautiful country. Yeah. Um, I, I was down there actually after I got back from Iraq. I went down there, fell in love with the place. Definitely want to go back. Buenos Aires is uh, it's an incredible city. Yeah, it's it's just a beautiful place. So I, I definitely think I would definitely go down there and, and definitely spend some more time. Yeah. Plus the steaks are incredible and the Malbec is very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't beat that. You were always very international. If I had to fall off the face of the earth, yes, you would probably find me on a wine farm in Mendoza. (laughs) Do you have any podcasts that you're listening to? When it it comes to podcasts, like I always subscribe, but then I just, they they just fall by the wayside. So I like the Intelligence Square debates. Hmm. Um, I listen to a lot of uh, CBC from Canada, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I I listen to like uh, a lot of their broadcasts, like uh, As It Happens. You know, I listen to a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was I was listening for a while. I, I actually tend to listen more to a lot of live radio over the Internet as, as it's happening instead of the actual podcast itself. So um, I'll listen to uh, the CBC from Canada. I listen to uh, Radio 702 from South Africa quite a bit to keep up with uh, what's going on down there. Um, obviously some Argentinian radio stations I'll listen to, to, to keep up with, uh, what's happening there. Um, basically just an eclectic mix of what's going on. You know, it's crazy because Americans just listen to American. I mean, for the most part, but people that have experienced the world like you have listen to everything They you know, they, they pay attention to what's going on globally, but people in the U S just care about the, what's going on in the U S. No, this guy, that's not even scratching the surface with this guy. When we were living on base he would always have the you know network japanese tv on and you know brushing up on your japanese <laughs> off of I, TV I still, yeah I, I i still do i mean i do follow you know it, if you want to like find out what i'm listening to or watching or reading or uh, i i tweet a lot of it out just because there's a lot of good material uh you can follow me at brendan vargas at uh, on twitter or is it brendan c vargas hold on I'll, I'll tell you right now, but yeah. So I have a pretty active Twitter feed, which uh, I, I'm, I'm on Twitter all the time. I love Twitter. I think Twitter is like one of the greatest things. I don't know if that shows my age or, <laughs> or you know, because there are a lot of people that are like, I mean, you've got Snapchat and Yik Yak. And like, I think social media is a, a, is a great thing, especially when it comes to like, you know, being able to talk about leadership and, and what's your leadership style and, and find out what people are up to and how people think and what people are thinking about and what they're looking at. Um, you can follow me at Twitter. It's uh, at Brendan Vargas. Um, I'm a very active Twitter user, so I'm usually on there tweeting stuff left, right, and center. And I tweet a lot of the different news sources I'm, I'm following and watching and and uh, some good resources there. Are you cool. reading any books? I am busy doing a, a master's program right now in public policy and administration. So mm. um, when I'm not doing my master's coursework, I am uh, busy uh, reading a bunch of different stuff right now. I'm, I've got a great book on the history of ancient Rome. It's called SPQR. Uh, it came out late 2015. It's it's a really good read. Um, even if you're not into history, the way it's written, it'll uh, help you uh, 
it, it, it makes it entertaining to read. I just finished a, a, a fiction book called The Travelers. Um, it's a it's a re- rather recent uh, rather recent issue a rather recent book that came out. That's pretty good. Other books I'm reading uh, there there's one on uh, Johannesburg. Uh, it's it's a memoir. Um, again, I love Southern Africa, so I, I'll always read a lot of read a lot of books on Southern Africa. And then I've got a ton more books that I'm uh, basically trying to plow through that I'll be able to plow through once my master's is over next yeah. year. All right. We could chat for days, but yeah. I, I know we probably should get going. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, appreciate it. it. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. It's, it was a nice invitation and uh, glad to chat with you guys. The High Performance Leadership Podcast is sponsored by 360 Solutions. Enjoying the podcast? Check out our iPad app. It's also called High Performance Leadership, and you can find it in the Apple App Store. It features interactive workbook versions of subjects we talk about here on the podcast. Just search for High Performance Leadership in the App Store. The High Performance Leadership Podcast is also sponsored by Principles of High Performance Leadership, the book by Chip Wilson. The first 100 people to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast get the book for free. That's right, free book. Go to 360solutions.com for more information. Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Make sure and subscribe via iTunes, give us a rating, and leave us a review. Tell everyone you know to do the same thing. The more subscriptions, ratings, and reviews we get, the higher iTunes rates us. Visit our website at hpleadershippodcast.com, tweet at us at twitter.com slash 360 underscore solutions, and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 360 solutions LLC. That's all together, no spaces. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.